Well, I have been so glad um, that we have been in this series during this fall. Um, Hearing encouragement to the scattered has been something that I have, uh, has been really important for me uh, because I've recognized a couple different things. One is, is that my, my brain is scattered right now. Um, I feel scattered in my life. I feel scattered from the people around me. I feel scattered and just, it feels like every aspect of my life. And I'm at a place where it is so easy for me to feel discouraged, to me to feel isolated, for me to feel alone. And so hearing a letter that was written specifically to people who are in the midst of dispersion, who are in the midst of being scattered themselves as the body of Christ and in a place where they have needed encouragement has been incredibly important. Um, We're going to be continuing in that series today, coming to um, a really challenging chapter that will give us a description um, of the Christian walk in the midst of suffering. And so I'd like for us to just jump right into our text it comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 19 here together. So reading in Jesus' name, starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ." To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though uh, something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, 
what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Okay, what a text. Um, there's a Danish philosopher, maybe you uh, have heard of maybe before, um, named Soren Kierkegaard, and he tells the story of a duck that I think serves as a good illustration of our Christian walk that our text points us to. And I figure if I'm going to talk in, in November and, and Moorhead about something, it better be about ducks or something like that. So anyway, um, so this is what he says. One springtime, a duck was flying with his friends northward across Europe. And during the flight, he came down in a barnyard where there were tame ducks. He enjoyed some of their corn. He stayed for an hour and then for a day. One week passed, and before he knew it, a month had gone by. He loved the good food, and so he stayed all summer long. One autumn day, when the same wild ducks were winging their way southward again, they passed overhead, and the duck on the ground heard their cries. He was filled with a strange thrill and joy, and he desired to fly with them once again. And with a great flapping of his wings, he rose in the air to rejoin his old comrades in flight. But he found that his good fare had made him so soft and heavy that he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. He dropped back again into the barnyard and said to himself, Oh, well. My life is safe here and the food is good. Every spring and autumn when he heard the wild ducks honking, his eyes would gleam just for a moment and he would begin flapping his wings. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew overhead uttering their cries, but he paid no attention. In fact, he failed to hear them at all. You know, if you think about all of the beautiful birds of the air, I could have chosen quite a few other birds, ducks are not on the list of most notable, okay? I mean, even though their bodies are small, um, they are too big for their wings to keep in flight without quite a bit of effort, okay? If you think about some other ones, right? Like if you think about an eagle, and I remember going up to Itasca and seeing eagles fly overhead and just watching them soar over the lake. And I was, it was just so impressive, right? When you see an eagle soar, right? I mean, eagles soar, but ducks, they just kind of flap, right? I mean, and they, they flap a lot. And they have to in order to stay in the air. Right? Like, like I said, they aren't the most beautiful things in the air that we could, that we could see. And yet, even though they, they, they lack beauty in the skies... Um, ducks are actually pretty good travelers. Um, there are reports of ducks from, from Canada that make their way all the way down to South America. And again, they might not look pretty doing it, um, especially not as pretty as other birds anyway, but they can cover pretty amazing distances unless they get distracted. See, they could get distracted by the easy food that they see below that is provided to the ducks that are, are resting and indulging in, in the barnyards they pass along the way to where they're supposed to be going. 
maybe like a, a, like a duck flapping its wings to stay in flight. This isn't maybe the most attractive parallel to use for the Christian walk, and yet, as much as we may not like it, I think it's probably a pretty fairly accurate one. And so from the the respected Danish philosopher, we get a warning of the dangers of not living in the freedom that we have been given in Christ. And it's a pretty relatable picture, isn't it? God intends us to be free ducks flying along the path in life that he has called us to, and yet the barnyards of the world are a tempting sight. And the ducks living there, they just look so comfortable and they look so happy. When we often think about the Christian walk and in our lives living every day in, in Christ, I think we tend to think about all the things that we are not supposed to do versus the things that we actually get to do. Or if we are talking about what we have been told is against God's law or plan, we don't often even think about the why behind it. We just think about it being something that we don't get to do. I mean, think about this when it comes to to our realities in our life, when we have to make tough decisions for others um, because we know the effects that it might have, and so we are trying to protect them because they aren't really there to protect themselves. I think a good example of this is is waiting for uh, our kids to have a cell phone, okay? Um, If you think about it, right? If you have told your child that they have to wait and they can't have a cell phone at their age, the only thing that gets talked about is the fact that you have said that they can't have one. And it doesn't really, I mean, the, the reason why you're saying that they can't have one doesn't even matter, even though you are telling them that there are really good reasons that it might be not healthy for that person or your child at that time to have a phone. They don't want to hear any of that, right? Some parents, you have to try to delay this for as long as you can remain sane. Sane, yeah, Remain sane for as long as you can without the constant bickering and feeling like, why am I the only one who seems like I'm neglecting my kid? Even though you know there are real reasons out there that, that it's not, it's, it, phone, phones for us are not necessarily, not necessarily good. They can be harmful. There's things out there called tech neck or text neck, which are injuries that now doctors and orthopedic surgeons are diagnosing at really high rates in younger children due to the pressure that people are putting on their necks because of how they use their phone and looking down, right? Forget about the, the, uh, the whole slew of psychological damage of social media and other apps and how damaging they can be for, to, about how we feel about ourselves and our own sense of, of value. And parents know this because we know it's true for ourselves, right? You know, the affirmation that we get, and, and especially at a time when adolescents are in a place where they're finally trying to understand who they are and their own sense of value can be a very vulnerable time and having things like that can can only reinforce things that might not be true. The amount of time we spend on the phone and the damage that we've seen social media have on our lives and our country are pretty staggering. You see, sometimes restriction is actually freedom. I think we forget that. Right? I know that when I restrict myself for taking seconds, that I will actually be granting my own physical body more freedom in my life. Even though I feel like in that moment and at that time, all I'm doing is punishing myself or feeling like it's restriction. 
Now, even though something can be uh, freedom, it doesn't mean that it's actually easy for us to accept and that there's not any suffering that goes along with it. See, God's law is outlined in a way to give you the best freedom of life that you can have. It's not restricting to punish, but restricting to set free and be the birds of the air that we have been designed for. That we, we should not invest our time and ourselves into the things that are fleeting. Uh, when I gave my life to Christ and, and I walked away from the certain things in my life that I recognized that were harmful for me when I looked into God's word, there were many uh, who ridiculed me and made fun of the person that I was becoming. And there were times that it was not easy to withstand against that. I mean, we don't like to suffer. We crave comfort and we shy away from what is hard. And even when we do suffer, we don't understand its role in our lives. If we are to understand God and what he has to say about suffering, we have to look at how God has turned certain things on its head. And the main way that he has done that is through the cross. Um, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul was writing to the church in Corinth that were in the, the midst of really struggling with this, this idea of God uh, uh, taking something and turning on its head and, and how the cross helps us uh, be able to understand that through power, wisdom, suffering, and hardship. And I'd love to read those words here for us. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Our world teaches us that only the strong survive. Right? When you think about power and you think about that word, what, do you, what is it that you actually think of? Now, when I think about power, I, I think about strength. I think about somebody who's conquering. I, I think about somebody who is just getting things done. But when I think like that, and I, I put that in my perspective of my, my own life, when I do that, what I'm doing is I'm putting... God's power into my own understanding, and I start to filter that through my own eyes. Martin Luther uh, once said that when we do things like this with, like, with power, we sort of create our own identity for God. 
And if we want to understand what God's power really looks like, then we need to look at the cross. See, God created a world that was perfect, yet sin and death was the thing that corrupted that perfection. He created a world that was without sin, but because of our disobedience, it changed. Now, how was God going to deal with that? I mean, how was he going to use his power to put an end to sin and death? Well, the answer is, is through the cross, through a place of utter weakness. It would be easy for us to think he'd conquer sin and death, right, by some cosmic showdown or or fireworks show in the sky. I mean, that would prove, right, God's power. That's how he would have done with it. But instead, his power is shown in its greatest form on a rugged cross. See, God takes what we think and he flips it on its head. Now, when we think about wisdom, right, we tend to think in the same way, right? Someone who is wise is someone who knows what to do and how to go about doing it. Being wise is, is knowing what is best and, and what is the best way to avoid trials and turbulent waters in our, in our world. But in the Bible, where does it say God's wisdom is at its height? Again, it's at the cross, at the height of pain and suffering, like we read in 1 Corinthians. See, what we see Jesus doing on the cross is is dying for the unlovely, loving the unlovely, dying for people that are not yet lovely and being the substitute for them. That because of our, our sin, we don't deserve to be loved, and according to the wisdom of the world, dying for them is something that would be absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. In our world, it tells us we try to climb up. In our world, we, we climb up socially, we don't climb down. We don't hang out with the marginalized, we try to get in with the in crowd. But Jesus, again, he flips our expectations on its head, and he shows that his wisdom is through the foolishness of the cross. Achieving things through being powerful or being wise or being popular is called having a theology of glory. It is about achieving what we have through earning it, and and that is what makes sense to our world. So what does this look like? Well, think about a father who wants to provide a good life for his wife and his kids, and he has to climb up the corporate ladder in order to do that, but in the meantime, he's sacrificing playing down on the floor with his kids. See, he's making what the world would call a wise choice, but, but in 30 years, that dad is going to have to look back and, and he might wish that he could go back in time and switch what he did. See, when we think about it that way, then the theology that comes through looking towards the cross makes a lot more sense. The cross is more than just an atonement for sins. It is a re- revelation of how Jesus deals with the people he loves. That through his suffering, we see how he shows his love towards his people. This was the triumph over evil. And despite what we might expect, Jesus' triumph of good over evil was not that evil didn't exist anymore. The triumph of good over evil was that now evil is used by God to bring good. We read that earlier in our passage when we're looking at Romans 8. He takes all things and he uses them according to his purpose. But many look, to the li- look through their lives through a theology of glory. 
a theology of glory, our, our approaches to, to our, our faith, to Christianity, and to our life, and we try to minimize difficult and painful things or try to move past them rather, rather than looking them square in the face and accepting them. It's the idea of I can do it all if I just use my power or I use my wisdom or I use my smarts or my people skills. Theologies of glory acknowledge the cross, but they view it mainly as a means to an end. It's, it's a difficult but necessary step on the way to becoming better. A theology of glory is when your faith feels like a fight against the realities instead of a resource for accepting them. I was just talking earlier um, before we, we prayed for our, our day today and talking about a theology of glory and how we often find ourselves saying, anytime we go through difficult things, it's, you know what, it's there to make me stronger. And, and God is doing this intentionally because he wants to build me up. Now, there may be moments where God uses difficult things in order to sanctify us and to make us more like him in his image. But if we look at every time we go through suffering in our world, that it's a way for us to have self-improvement, then we are, are, are taking something that God meant with suffering and using it for our own self-improvement. Suffering for, uh, for Christ and, and on his behalf is a part of our call. Peter is moving towards the end of, of his letter here with this because he knows in whom he's writing to. He knows that they are suffering for Christ and he wants to remind them to continue to do the will of God in the ways that they were equipped because restriction brings about freedom. And ultimately the reality, as verse 7 says, the end is near. Now, reading that verse, the end is near, seems a little, I don't know, doom and gloom. If you know me, I'm, I'm more of the bubbly, fun, Chris Farley type of guy, and less about the doom and gloom kind of guy. Um, I haven't built a bunker in my backyard yet, waiting for the fall of America. And, and, and so when I say the end is near, it's not, I'm not saying that to scare us, but instead to remind us. Because it's just like the duck, we can forget until we see the birds above us and we're reminded that life isn't forever. And we have been given a freedom that we are called to live in. I had a friend from this uh, church this week remind me of these words that I, I needed to hear. He said this to me in an email where he talked about praying for me in the next call God has placed on, on my heart. And he said, I also know we are getting towards the end of the church age. The olive tree is leafing out and time is short. We all need to do what we can to gather more into the fold. I was thankful for those words um, this week reminding me of the urgency to be on mission of my life. I think there's one thing, I, I remember being in New York City during 9-11 when, when our, our world was rocked and thinking about it was a time where I saw many people start to ask the really important questions in life. And I have seen this year being another time where that's actually taking place. And that's God taking something that, that, that is um, just the reality of, of the brokenness of our world with things like COVID and, and him actually being a way for him to, to remind his people and all of us about the need that we have for Christ. And we need 
the need for us to have him in our life, for us to confess our sins and come before him and for him to be able to to cleanse us from our sin and we can claim victory in the cross. I want us to go and serve God on the mission that he has put us on, knowing that we have that victory in the cross, which the world finds foolish. But as our text says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, Lord, our message here this morning. I, uh, Lord, I, 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 there are times where we come upon um, chapters in, in Scripture and, and places within God's Word, your Word, Lord, um, where we find it difficult to accept. And, and Lord, I, just, I, I think in these, these moments when we hear about what does it mean to suffer on your behalf, Lord, I, I, I pray, um, Lord, that we see the bigger picture of suffering as we see it through the cross. Lord, that, that first and foremost, before we think about what does it mean to suffer for you, we have to first understand the role of suffering in our life. Father, I pray that you help reorient us this morning and, and put us back on that, that right track of understanding as we look at that, that we have a suffering Savior. Lord, that there is no other, there is no other religion in the world that, that would ever take their God, the person that they worship, and find that that person suffers on their behalf. It's absolutely amazing to think that we have an incarnational God who stepped into this world of sin and death to redeem his people because of his great love. Father, I thank you that we, can, that we can even look at our own lives through that lens so that we can see you even through the midst of all the things so that we can be comforted by the fact that even when we do have trouble that we can take heart because you have overcome the world. Father, I pray that it puts an urgency on our life and in the midst of, of, of Lord, just attaching ourselves to you and your word. And, and for those who don't know your name, Lord, I pray, um, Lord, that you use us as, as your people, as your sent church to tell them of the good news of the gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen.